Welcome back to our third and final episode in our points of discussion. Should JAK inhibitors be considered for first-line therapy in the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in children? In episodes one and two, the group discussed the use of JAK inhibitors versus biologics and other traditional therapies to treat moderate to severe AD in children. Now the group discusses research still needed to better answer these questions. Before we begin, it's important to note The views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or the program speakers. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA or the speakers and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. If you've listened to the first two episodes, you already know that this points of discussion topic is a bit of a departure from our usual point-counterpoint debate format. Instead, this series is a moderated discussion about the pros, cons, and nuances of choosing JAK inhibitors over other therapies for atopic dermatitis. This program is being moderated by Dr. Minnelli Liu. Dr. Liu is a practicing pediatric dermatologist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. She's the co-director for the Vascular Anomalies Center and is an associate professor of clinical dermatology at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. She is also the co-chair for the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance Atopic Dermatitis Psoriasis Focus Study Group. Now I'll turn it over to Dr. Liu. Thank you, Jen, for the introduction. Um, And we're very excited today to have our panel of speakers. We think that this is a very timely podcast. We have four wonderful speakers tonight. Dr. Paller is the chair of the Department of Dermatology, Walter J. Hamlin Professor of Dermatology, and Professor of Pediatrics at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. She's also a co-founding member of PEDRA and co-chair of PEDRA's Atopic Dermatitis and Psoriasis Focus Study Group. It's Amy Power. Dr. Kirkorian is a practicing pediatric dermatologist and chief of dermatology at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. She also serves on PEDRA's meetings committee. Hi, it's Yasmin Kirkorian. Dr. Siegfried is a pediatric dermatologist Professor of Pediatrics and Dermatology at St. Louis University School of Medicine. She is also a co-founding member of PEDRA and currently serves on PEDRA's nominating committee. Hi, it's Elaine Siegfried. And last but not least is Dr. Yu, who is a pediatric dermatologist, director of contact and occupational dermatology, and assistant professor of adult and pediatric dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Yu also serves on several PEDRA committees. Hi, it's Jeff Yu. What research do you think is required or is needed for us to better answer the questions that have been brought up in our conversation? Head-to-head trial, head-to-head active comparator trial. You know, and that's never unfortunately gonna happen with off-label drugs. So we're never gonna see, you know, these off-label pimacrolimus and and tacrolimus, you know, it's just because the investment is just so very high and that's so unfortunate for our patients. Now, the, the head-to-head trials that have been done um, with the JAK inhibitor versus dupilumab uh, have been very interesting. They have been short-term. And I think as we see the 
uh, ones go out farther, if we're going out to 24 weeks, uh, we start to see that they're certainly equivalent to, to dupilumab, uh, perhaps not superior as we go out further with time. But these are all done in adults. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. These kinds of studies, I don't forecast, are going to be done in anybody younger than adult age. Yeah, I, I think that Jeff may have mentioned this earlier, but I think the most common question we get is, well, so are they just gonna have to be on this drug like forever? Uh, something phrased in that manner. And so I think patients want to know, but I would also like to know, are there people who can come off? Someone, I think Amy described short, uh, you know, increasing the interval of drug injection until you can take them off. I haven't been able to do that yet, but I would love to see if there were biomarkers that would be predictive of people in whom one could do that, if that's even practical. Maybe Amy knows more about that from the studies that she's done, but that's the question that I'd have. And if we can show that it's disease modifying in the very young ones, then it would be really, really exciting because then, you know, hit them hard early and then maybe save them from a lifetime of this discussion. I'm talking about atopic dermatitis. Um, with alopecia areata and vitiligo, I still find it frustrating that I can't prognosticate well for patients. And that's something that maybe the drugs aren't as relevant to, but they are because if you had a an ability to do that, you would know who to target for aggressive therapy, maybe with systemics, as opposed to giving them hope like, okay, we're just going to bridge you. You're going to regrow your hair or you're going to repigment and so on. So those are some of the topics that I'm looking for studies on that I'm sure are being done. And I'm excited to see what will come of them. And we should I put in a plug for designing those trials like that. I mean, because we know that people who have ophiasis distribution for alopecia areata, that's the worst prognostic sign, right? Or we know that with vitiligo, if you have bilateral as opposed to segmental vitiligo, that's probably a worse prognosis and the studies should absolutely, I think, be designed that way, it would be nice. I think a major confounder though to some of these studies, at least for disease modifying, is we know that you know, in a certain population of children, as they get older, their atopic dermatitis does improve on their own. So two, three years down the line after being on dupilumab, did the medication actually modify their disease or perhaps their atopic dermatitis naturally, you know, got a little bit better. Um, and I think that's the part that's going to be really difficult to, to see. But I, but I do agree. I, I think if we can look at biomarkers, if we can look at um, objective evidence of disease, you know, modification, I think that would be really interesting to see. Yeah, if we could oh, just uh, get a handle on the subsets, you know, and do the best uh, enrollment criteria to distinguish between the different types, that would be really great research, I think. So I'm a huge believer in biomarkers, but um, I, I think we have to recognize that to answer the questions that we've been talking about here, uh, one needs to have a variety of different markers, markers that subdivide based on what we see phenotypically, markers that subdivide based on endotypes that we can define based on a wide variety of different biomarkers that we do not understand right now. Uh, and that to answer questions, whether it be what was the natural course or which drug would we predict upfront someone may respond to, or even what kind of comorbidities would this patient have developed and how we modify that with drugs is going to take very large numbers of patients and a very long-term longitudinal study. This is not something that I see pharmaceutical companies wanting to support 
very readily because you're going to need to have large numbers, all comers, not necessarily related at all to uh, the outcome with their particular medication. There have been biomarker studies that have been done as part of drug um, trials. And at least to date, I don't think there has been anything that's been a major breakthrough in trying to help to predict which drugs one person or another might respond to. We're probably gonna be needing to do big data analysis, not just looking at what we know to be the biomarkers of disease that have been correlated with severity, let's say, but perhaps very different markers. And it may involve things besides just transcription or even proteomics, but going to metabolomics or lipidomics or some of these newer frontiers that we haven't been paying much attention to. So uh, we have great technology, but the investment would be huge and probably require uh, something that's not even been started at this point. And even, I think one place you know, simple studies are cost, you know, uh, uh, 1.5 billion. Right. So breaking it down even more is, you know, not feasible, I don't think. I mean, one place to look could also be in the psoriasis world, which they probably have a better handle on certain of these biomarkers than we do, you know, like which patient is going to respond to an L17, which patient is going to respond to an L1223, you know, I don't know. Well, I don't and think I've that's even been, I don't think that's even no, they ha hasn't been discovered with years of with 15 now, years of experience. It's uh, just and, their and morbidities. Yeah. yeah. You know, their morbidities that contra that are contraindications to one right. drug or the other, as opposed to which one's going to work better. In JIA, the rheumatologists yeah. are undertaking it. They, they are. Um, but it's something to consider. And I will say that one good thing that they don't have is that we have growing evidence that at least one can get some endotype type markers from just doing something non-invasive like tape strips. So you can think about getting blood and doing uh, some big data analysis on the blood. You can think about coupling that with tape strips that may look more at the um, epidermal markers and some of the more innate immune markers, but those may be valuable. Uh, and a new area is pharmacogenomics. Uh, and that also is something that you can do at any time during the course, because they're always gonna have the same genomic markers and try to decide, um, although I'm not sure what direction, of course, but try to see if there might be any markers within that realm as well. So there are a lot of possibilities that we uniquely can do uh, in taking care of the skin, uh, but yes, there, that would be a major long-term investment. But I think first and foremost, what we need to understand as a group is, you know, are JAK inhibitors safe, right? Like in children, and I think getting everybody to come together and and log the patients that they have on it and take a look at, you know, five years down the line, 10 years down the line, these are long-term studies, but several years down the line and just get the evidence that perhaps there isn't that perceived risk that we all have and people should be more comfortable prescribing it. I don't know. But I think these are things that are going to take a group of investigators, you know, perfect for Pedro. Yeah, it would be great if we could get some investment in PIDRA, for example, to be uh, just having some simple form to track all patients that have gone on a JAK inhibitor and see what happens over the next 5, 10, mm -hmm. 20 years. Uh, but that is quite an investment because uh, it would take a lot of sites, a lot of work, a lot of manpower hours. Yeah, even a registry is something that is just enormously expensive and requires a lot of administrative support. And usually isn't broad-based. Anything else? 
we talked about the safety, but I'd want to just return to um, the topical, the safety of the topicals in young patients, because when you have, for example, and I know we perhaps suggested that the jacks aren't as helpful in, in alopecia and that's probably the case when applied topically just because of where the hair you know sits, but um, let's talk about two or three-year-olds is a really different ballpark than a 12-year-old. So I am interested to see what will come of use of the drugs topically in that population for any of these diseases and the safety. Are we going to be more worried about absorption? You know, we say 20% in older people, but is that 10% in a two-year-old? Is that 5%? Should we be using much less of it, a thinner amount? Are the ointments, you know, and so on. So I wonder about the very young patients and the research that's going to come on them. Uh, and if that's even in progress or being thought through. So there is a study right now with apatacitinib down to three years of age, uh, and that could well be an indication that comes out in the future. I'm going to make one other comment, though, for us all to think about. And I've thought about this quite a bit because I have many patients with atopic dermatitis who are moderate, and I have them for long periods of time. And the only way they stay in some modicum of control, and it's not necessarily great control, is because twice a day, they're putting on at least a medium strength topical steroid. These agents have never gone through the same kind of rigorous assessment that our most recently uh, available medications have gone through. Uh, we do not, by any means, routinely look at what kind of uh, ACTH, stimulation suppression there would be in patients who for years on end are putting sometimes class two topical corticosteroids on their bodies to a large extent once or twice a day. And I think about this when I think about uh, putting them on something like dupilumab or even a JAK inhibitor, because we don't know what they're doing um, with, with applying this, but we do know that it's gotta be affecting them to some extent. Uh, I'll tell you anecdotally about a patient of mine who's dermatitis was largely on the hands and feet. And uh, it, was, it was just a problem. So I gave him some clobetazole to use just for a few weeks on his feet to try to jumpstart and get it under control. He happened to be a diabetic. He could not use it because every time they put on the clobetazole, his blood sugars went so high. We have no idea, even with these topical steroids, what kind of long-term effects we might be having because it's just not been studied. Yeah, I have a patient exactly like that who you know, was very fastidious about monitoring their diabetes and they got completely out of control when using a combination calcipotriene um, beta-methasone. You know, that happened too. But, uh, and, uh, you know, I never use topical corticosteroids long-term more than 15 days a month with a measured amount, you know, because I've seen lots of adrenal suppression and I'm well aware that the topical corticosteroid studies, the longest term that we have is four weeks for anything, you know, and we have very few uh, studies that are used down to three months, you know, most of them are two years and up and many of them are 12 and up or 18 and up. So it is definitely an area of unmet need. I have one other thing just to, just to drop because we have so many other areas of unmet need with inflammatory diseases that we don't understand the pathophysiology. I mean, you know, you look at morphia or discoid lupus or the pityriasis lichenoides that are so difficult to treat. And, and I think that topical JAK inhibitors, you know, may offer something there, but, you know, we're never going to have the kind of uh, level one data that we need for those diseases, unfortunately. 
So I don't know if, you know, if, if people have, if people saw this, but you can actually get 2% tofacitinib now compounded for $75, which is very affordable compared to the price that you would pay for, you know, ruxolitinib um, on label if you don't have the right insurance. So I wonder if this may be, you know, an area that like for your hand and feet dermatitis patient, for people who might need it all over, you know, using a topical jack sometimes as a steroid sparing agent, even in an affordable manner, might be helpful just because the data on that at least shows it's beneficial in atopic dermatitis. I guess, that but how is, much better is that than using tacrolimus or, you know? Right, Not but the lot, right, right, right. I, I think for selective patients in whom we would think that a jack inhibitor uh, could be very valuable. And, and let's talk outside of atopic dermatitis. Let's talk outside of some of these other disorders we talked about. Uh, uh, any lichenoid disorder, for example, should be driven by an interferon type one pathway and should be amenable to a JAK inhibitor. I think there are many uses that we might consider. And uh, yes, the prices come down for compounding, but I would still put out there that there are many families that $75. Right. For right. a tube, and especially if there's fairly extensive involvement, is absolutely not affordable. Absolutely. This discussion has been wonderful. And thank you for the, the wonderful discussion, the many points that you have brought up, the many questions, um, and um, for making us think about these really important issues that are so important for our patients. Well, thank you so much for listening to Points of Discussion. Should JAK inhibitors be considered for first-line therapy in the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in children? We hope you enjoyed all three episodes. If you have questions, you can reach out to us at info at pedraresearch.org. I want to thank our moderator, Dr. Manelli Liu. I also want to thank our guest speakers, Dr. Powler, Dr. Siegfried, Dr. Kerkorian, and Dr. Yu. Thank you so much for all of your amazing insights on this topic. I would also like to thank our program sponsors, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, Regeneron, and Sanofi Genzyme. Pedra is solely responsible for all the program content and selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. You can find more educational content at www.pedraresearch.org forward slash education. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Pedra members can download the free Pedra app just by going to your Apple or Google App Store and searching for Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. Thanks so much for listening.